There we are. So I thought I would call today's talk Faith and Uncertainty. Um, I, uh, this idea of uncertainty is one that has interested me explicitly since I read the book called Chaos by James Gleick. Uh, I think that's how you say his name. And I, I have a friend from college who studies chaos theory. And the interesting thing about chaos theory as a scientific theory is that it's completely determinist. Uh, so it's not actually about chaos, which is kind of disappointing because I was more interested in the chaotic part of it. But what they're trying to do is prove that the chaos is actually sort of manageable. Um, I want to talk about it from this perspective. There's a famous proverb, uh, Proverbs 16, verse 9. A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Uh, sometimes we popularize this as a man proposes, God disposes, or something more, even more sort of lowbrow, like if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? So the idea is no matter how much we plan, we were not really in control of our lives, right? And this can be quite frightening, but uh, if God is in control, then we have, a, we have a good backup, right? Things are gonna be okay. So I wanna talk about how faith addresses the uncertainty of our lives. Uh, and this is, I'm continuing to think through as best I can, just this whole question about what are the faithful supposed to be doing right now? Uh, I started thinking about this during the pandemic and I felt, um, if I can say so, I felt like the response of our religious leaders, say in April or so, it didn't feel adequate to me for some, some reason. And maybe it's just because I'm a monk and I think strangely, but I thought, well, maybe I'll say some, some of what I think we should be doing. And so I did a series of blog posts. And of course, then things got infinitely crazier <laughs> in the last seven weeks or so. So I've continued to think about this and see how have we responded. I saw that uh, a couple weeks ago, Bishop Barron uh, was urging the faithful to, the laity should be getting involved in terms of the legal questions of what to do about statues being taken down or questions of uh, police brutality, defunding the police, all these questions that are very uh, pressing all of a sudden that kind of came out of, uh, I wouldn't say they came out of nowhere, but they suddenly became very urgent. and. Um, and yes, uh, the documents of Vatican II call for the laity to take a certain place in the church's life, especially where expertise is needed that most priests and bishops lack, right? And at the same time, again, much as I like Bishop Barron and I, I uh, follow a lot of what he has to say, I still felt like this was inadequate because, well, what are the bishops then supposed to tell us beyond like, oh, it's your problem? Right, it sounds a little bit like that. That's not what he's saying, but. So here's where I wanna start with. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ comes to us from out of this world, okay? He's not, he's in the world, but he doesn't belong to the world. And when he comes into the world, he comes from the, the uh, Trinitarian Union and uh, enters into this sort of limitation that we've got in terms of our existence. But he doesn't belong to this, right? This is really important because we oftentimes try to deal with our problems 
with our own resources, you know, with the resources that we have in this world, and we forget to access the resources we have from grace. Another place this happens, this happens all the time, but the key place is at the Holy Eucharist. When Jesus appears on the altar, he comes to us from out of this world. Uh, another way we think about this is he's a messenger from the future. This is often said that the Eucharist is a foretaste of the heavenly kingdom where we hope to be uh, when this life comes to an end and our lives are transformed and we enter into eternal life in its fullness. That's already going on. That's that, because it's eternal, it's not in time again, right? Uh, it's already existing in some sense. And when the body and blood of Christ appear on the altar, we are thrown up. We get a glimpse of this future, right? And not, not just because we suddenly can see it, but because the future is coming to us. The resurrection is coming to us. We haven't experienced this yet in our mortal bodies. We're still in our mortal bodies. But we get a sense of like what that's going to look like when Jesus approaches us in the Eucharist, in any of the sacraments, really. We get a, a picture of the world that's, that's not yet fully here, that we can't quite see yet. And this should be a great source of comfort for us, right? Because we don't have to rely, again, on just whatever resources we can find in this world. So we want to adopt that perspective that Jesus already has, that eternal perspective, uh, that, that immortal perspective. That, and this is how, why the martyrs could do what they did, because they recognized, they, they had this extreme conviction that their mortal bodies were going to be resurrected, no matter what happened to them here. Um, uh, so they could be at peace with whatever their torturers threw at them. So I began last month talking about the importance of praising God, uh, but also then letting the liturgy and the scriptures teach us what should elicit this praise from us. Like, why should we praise God? Well, we should praise God because he created everything, because he's redeemed us, because he is sustaining us at all times. We have to be reminded of this every day, so we, we chew over the scriptures as much as we can. Uh, we let the liturgy show us what it is that is praiseworthy in God. Um, and then we are converted. We, we grow and change. So learning how to praise God correctly is a type of conversion. And it's a conversion, again, that, is, that comes from outside of us, right? So God comes from, from his eternal dwelling, gives us his word, speaks to us. And then we learn from this who God is. We couldn't have achieved this on our own. Um, so any time that we have this conversion, as I said last time, we should remember it because God has reached into our world and changed us. He's given us the, the materials we need to understand what's going on in, in, from his perspective. So it's good for us to remember these conversions. It's a reminder that God is at work in us even when we don't feel it. Uh, even when we, we can't quite put our finger on what he's doing, we can adopt a stance of faith, for example. So I want to talk about faith today. We often think of the opposite of faith as being unbelief, atheism, right? And uh, this is, I think, given more cultural currency by a, a certain type of Protestant understanding of faith, which is kind of eternal assurance model where once I commit myself to the Lord Jesus, then I sort of remain in faith uh, and everything's okay. Um, 
the problem with this then is whenever we have doubts, we, we call into question whether that conversion took place, right? And so what I found in, in my many dialogues with atheists is that they were often in this place where uh, they, they made this once and for all act of faith and then found it shaken and then lost their faith and then they didn't see how they could get it back by definition. And so the, the opposition is between I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal savior or I don't believe in such a thing. And I want to propose that the more traditional way of looking at this is quite different. Okay, so for instance, let's talk about when Jesus challenges Peter for lacking faith, what does he mean? What are the examples in the Gospels where Jesus challenges somebody to have more faith? Uh, I mentioned Peter again because I I think a lot about Peter because I'm named after him. Peter walks on the water and it's working. (laughs) He says, you know, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to walk across the water. It is, okay. Then he starts walking, everything's fine. And then the waves start kicking up and he gets nervous, right? And then when Jesus rescues him, he, he says, why do you have so little faith? Same thing with the uh, apostles in the boat. Storm comes up, Jesus is asleep, whatever. <laughs> and uh, they, they say, don't you care if we die? And he gets up and he rebukes the sea and it calms down. And he says, why didn't you have any faith, right? So in this opposition, we've got faith on the one hand and we've got this fear, right? This anxiety. Um, we're going to die. We're going to suffer, right? A reasonable thing to worry about. We don't like, nobody likes pain. None of us, we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen when we die. Uh, I don't think we've, anyone here has had a near-death experience. Maybe you have. Some, some people have been through this and then they've, they can tell us something of what it's like, presumably. But most of us don't know. And the unfamiliar is kind of scary, right? So what faith is, is entrusting my life to God in such a way that it has practical consequences. And we can actually grow in this faith, right? This is a faith as a virtue rather than as a kind of conversion, once for all, change in me. It's an ongoing series of conversions and and growth, like any virtue. So virtue is um, kind of habit of being where we get stronger and stronger. There's no limit to virtue because in a mysterious way, even the uh, human virtues, justice, fortitude, prudence, and temperance, partake of God in some mysterious way. So there's no limit to them, right? Uh, We can always be more courageous. We can always be more faithful. Uh, So, if the real enemy here is not so much unbelief as a kind of intellectual category, and it's more a question of our emotional, psychological conviction, uh, then we can see that we're faced with a particular challenge at the moment. Um, because let's, you know, let's just be honest, the, the media, they make their money by peddling fear. Okay? Um, I could say this the way Cardinal George used to put it, is that the, you, know, you sell newspapers by, by stirring up controversy. right? Uh, a news show in which you get on and say, well, everything's fine. Uh, let's go to our advertisers. <laughs> that, you know, people aren't, are they're going to stop watching. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, whereas I, I think the internet is even worse this way because in old fashioned newspapers on the front page, you might have six headlines and you have copy, right? So you start reading right away and then it's like continued on page three. On, uh, if you go to CNN, you have 50 headlines and no text, or maybe just a, maybe a little blurb on the main article. And every single headline is trying to get you to click because their advertisers have to pay more the more you click. So every one of them, they want it to scare you into clicking on it. And, uh, and you follow and follow and follow and click, click, click. And we get more and more anxious when this happens. Social media works kind of the same way. This happens, uh, you know, I, I have to, well, I don't have to, but our monastery Facebook page has to be linked to a personal page. That's the way their policies work. So I have a personal page. And of course, when you have a personal page, their algorithms are really good. Everybody finds you. <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I watch what's going on. And um, just, I, I, it's part of my personality. I've always been a skeptic. Uh, and um, so, I've watched as people just share things about coronavirus or about racism or this, this or that. And my first response is usually skepticism. Like, I don't believe it. You got to prove it to me before I believe it. And there was one that was being shared by several people in my feed. And it was a picture of four pictures. Each one had uh, a somewhat overweight man in an intentional, uh, uh, intensive care unit. Uh, wearing nothing but diapers face down on a ventilator and then it was said like this is was shared by a friend of mine who knows someone who's a nurse in ICU and this is this is why we've got to wear masks so I I, uh, I followed a couple of these shares back to somebody I didn't know who uh, shared it with someone who was a friend of mine and I said where, where did where'd you get this from <laughs> Uh, can you verify the sources? Can you tell me like that these men are actually suffering from COVID-19? And uh, she got kind of upset with me and said, why, do you, why does it matter? I said, I just, you know, I'm interested in like knowing who these people are. For one thing, it seems like a breach of medical ethics that you take pictures of people in an intensive care unit and share it on the internet. Um, but I was also just based on what the pictures looked at and, and some other experiences I've had, I just kind of, wondered if this wasn't something just to make you scared. Whether it's true or not, it's just put up there to make you scared for, what, for purposes of, say, undermining your faith. Um, well, no, it, it's, I can't verify any of it, but it's what my friends tell me is actually what's going on. So therefore, so I didn't say this, but I thought, so if a meme like supports things that I happen to think are true, then I can post it even if it's a lie. <laughs> Because it'll, it'll uh, accomplish what I want it to accomplish, which is to make everybody afraid. Um, and I think this is, as I say, this is the big challenge. Part of the problem with the coronavirus is that um, we're being trained to treat every single individual as a hostile presence, right? as a danger to me, a, a mortal danger. And uh, June is, uh, depending on you know, what kind of personality you have in the monastery is either the most awesome month of the year because we've got so many solemnities and we have a great bit of fun or it's the most most tortuous month because every day is a different schedule um, and so we've had a lot of walks because normally on a solemnity like St. John the Baptist or Peter and Paul St. Benedict the guy the younger guys will go for a walk and uh, yesterday we, we drove down to uh, 
the Garden of the Phoenix in Jackson Park, walked around Jackson Park, and uh, it was very nice. But there was one walk we did, we, we walked up the lake uh, after it was opened up. We didn't do anything illegal, don't worry. Uh, we couldn't get to the lake before. And uh, we, we, uh, we couldn't, we got some coffee and things, but we couldn't sit in the coffee shop. So we went to this park uh, in uh, like the Printer's Row area and just broke my heart because uh, again, we're not required to wear masks as we can social distance. People don't know us, they don't know that we're monks. We're, we often go in lay clothes. And, uh, but I just saw these parents like getting their children like away from us because we looked scary. Uh, uh, these poor children, you know, they're being traumatized and they, by this fear that everybody's gonna infect them. So this is our challenge because this increase in anxiety and fear naturally undermines our faith if we're not careful, right? If we don't deliberately take measures to work on our faith, our faith is going to get weaker. And this was one of the uh, things I noticed when I, back when the McCarrick scandals were coming out, uh, I, I said to many of you at the time, I'll, I'll give my opinion on this once I'm ready. <laughs> I'm going to think about it for a while. And it took me about 16 months before I was ready. But one of the things I noticed in this is that the picture we had of God in the midst of this scandal was that uh, God was, was out there somewhere and we were supposed to do something about getting the hierarchy in order or whatever. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything, but I'm saying if, if, we're, if we feel the need to do something because God's not doing anything, then we're not acting out of faith. Okay? So we've got to keep asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where is God in the situation? What is he up to? The church is the body of Christ. So by definition, if there's a problem with the episcopacy, Christ is sharing that with us. We're not alone. We're not left without shepherds. Uh, so, but then we, again, we, this requires us to keep asking the question, where is Christ in my life? Where can I look for him? What is he doing for me? And this is, you know, last month why I said the, this is the importance of praying the, the Lord's Psalms regularly because God is in the sunshine. God's in the plants that are growing all around us. And, and our poor poor 16-year-old cat who's on his last legs, but he's, uh, he's hanging in there. If you, if you give him tuna, he suddenly gets super energized. But, but he's, uh, he's an old, old cat. <laughs> so he's been in the monastery longer than most of the brothers. So, let me get back to my notes. Uh, I, I think in some cases with the media, it's not just a, um, uh, an economic model. I do think sometimes it's deliberate that um, if we say, well, we're going to let God be a part of this, that's offensive to certain persons right now, right? So, and um, I, I understand why people would take that perspective, but we shouldn't be dissuaded by it from including God in this. Another thing is that the constant call to do something, uh, there's a certain danger to that because we, I think we Benedictines certainly as, as contemplative monks should be willing to take time to pray, to be thoughtful, reasonable, to, uh, you know, go wait in the city until the power of God is given to us as uh, Jesus says to the apostles before he ascends, beginning of Acts. You know, just wait. When the Holy Spirit appears, then you'll know what to do. 
So we, it's, it's possible to wait, okay? Um, and oftentimes when we just act, we, we end up just, again, making the situation more secularized, more anxious. We're honoring the anxiety by acting out of it. And when we just sit, refuse to act out of anxiety or fear, then that, th that feeling will start to go away. Okay? We often think, by the way, so it's, th this, is, this is how uh, our emotional systems work. And I can prove this by talking about addictions again. So for instance, we often think if I'm anxious, I need to do something and then I'll feel less anxious. That might work for, for a day or two. But it, you teach yourself by doing that to react every time you feel anxious, okay? So the, the analog would be, um, I'm, I'm socially awkward, but, uh, but when I have a little bit to drink, I feel better. And then I can relate to people. And instead of dealing with my social awkwardness, I, I use alcohol as a crutch. And then every, uh, it trains me to think that every time I feel awkward, I, well, I should just have a drink. And before I know it, I can't stop drinking, right? So it's a similar kind of thing. If we don't address the anxiety and we act out of it, we train ourselves to be anxious all the time and not to even be aware of it <laughs> because we're, we're usually manifesting this by zooming around and doing stuff all the time, being an activist. Um, so it's okay to, to wait, to think. Um, I was telling some, some other friends who were asking me about this uh, via email this week. Um, I, I tend to be primarily choleric in temperament, but I have a, a pretty strong melancholic part. And what I've realized is when I have an important decision to make, I have to rely on the melancholic. If I do the choleric part, I'll usually uh, make a decision that will backfire. <laughs> um, the choleric part is very useful for other things, but it's, it's not necessarily a good decision-making aspect of my temperament. Um, but the, the, the difficulty is if I'm going to rely on the melancholic part of my temperament, you're going to have to wait for a while because I need, to, I need to wait until I can process it and really make sure that I'm speaking with conviction and not just because I, you want me to say something, <laughs> right? So, and then that gives me a chance to pray over it, to reflect on the scriptures, to reflect on the lives of the saints. Also, the other thing that can happen from waiting is uh, we, we can actually sort of open ourselves to what I would call serendipity. Um, and uh, the reason I want, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of this, uh, this talk today is on this whole idea of maybe the, the solution to our problem is something not only that we haven't thought of yet, but it's going to come from outside of us. You know, it's not something we can even predict at this moment because we don't know it yet, right? So, um, because many times it happens in our lives that we get answers to questions we were asking from sources that we, we didn't even know we had, right? Um, and I think part of the anxiety in our world today comes about, I, I wrote about this on a couple of the blog posts back in April and May. We have done such a good job of convincing ourselves that we can control the future. We, we believe in science and sociology and so on. Um, you see this, we, we train young people in this so that you know, it's kind of a cliche now that the millennials, by the time they're 16, they've planned where they're going to college, what they're majoring in, where they're going to graduate school, who they're going to marry, how many kids they're going to have. <laughs> uh, 
And then when they get to be 24, 25, and, and it hasn't quite worked out that way, then they're anxious or they feel like a failure. And you just question like, well, how would a 16 year old know what he wants in life? Because he hasn't experienced very much yet. Sometimes we experience things in our 20s that change us radically. You know, I, I was, I was going to mention this later on, but uh, one, one friend I met in high school and then another friend I met in college, I just couldn't have predicted how these friends would influence me, especially the one I met in college. Um, uh, she was just a, a completely unique individual. I had never met anyone like her. And I happened to manage to visit her when I was in New York just before everything got shut down in uh, February. And... Uh, I just, I could not have anticipated her impact on my personality and my outlook on life. Um, and oftentimes when I'm, when I'm puzzled about something, it helps me to think like, well, if I were talking to Susie about this, what would she say? You know, how would she think about this? Because she thinks completely different than I do. Um, and yet we, we are friends, we're, we're uh, musicians together. Um, I couldn't have predicted I was gonna meet someone like that when I was 18. I, I just. I had no experience of anyone like that. And we meet people like that all the time. We just don't know it, <laughs> right? Uh, so one of the problems of being really good at predicting the future, controlling our environment, is that we, again, train ourselves to be really useless when things go wrong. <laughs> because we think, you know, we should have thought of that. We should have predicted that. But maybe the thing that went wrong is exactly the thing that we need to get a different perspective that'll solve some other problem that we've been stuck on. You know, we don't know. Uh, we don't really know that much about what's going on. <laughs> the world is super duper complicated. That's a Jordan Peterson trope. You know, we can't possibly know everything. Not even a little slice of everything. We can't know it. So the idea that we should be able to predict what's gonna happen tomorrow. But then the, the good news is God knows what's gonna happen tomorrow and he's gonna be with us. So whatever happens, we can receive it with a kind of openness and, and uh, hopefully a kind of, uh, w with faith certainly, possibly with you know, acceptance, even a kind of playfulness. Um, so another thing that's happened that I, I can share that just as a personal example, but I'm sure you've had an experience like this, is um, about three or four years ago now, Seminary Co-op in Hyde Park, they, uh, we're, we're members of the co-op, and uh, uh, they have their annual sale in June every year, and so we organize a community trip down to the bookstore, <laughs> pick up uh, some, some theological books and some other things, perhaps. And I, I always go to the scripture section, and there was a book uh, by a guy named Friedman, and it was called A Failure of Nerve, and I thought, what a strange title for a scripture book. And I, I, because the name was Friedman, I thought it was David Noel Friedman, who's a great scripture scholar. And I thought, uh, well, I should at least take a look at this. He must be kind of stepping out of his usual comfort zone. And so I pulled the book off the shelf. And it's actually, it was shelved in the wrong place. It's got by a guy named Edwin Friedman. And he's a uh, rabbi and a psychologist. But I, I, as I'm leafing through it, looking at it, I, I read a couple of lines that just struck me. It's like, whoa, how, why would anybody say that? That's incredible. Um, I think the line was, um, uh, like in a family, there will be no change in a, in a problem child until the parents get absolutely fed up. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, that's pretty un-PC. And I put the book back 
And I, I, went, I went back to the monastery and I just, I, I was mulling over things I read in this book for a couple days. I thought, I'm, I'm just gonna go buy that book. It was really interesting. And I've been reading it over and over and over since. Uh, it's really an interesting book. I, I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't gonna buy it at first. Um, I don't even know why I opened it up once I realized it was the, not the guy I was looking for, but you know, that, so I couldn't have predicted that. These things happen all the time. Yeah, it's called A Failure of Nerve. Um, and it's, I think the subtitle is something like Leadership in an Anxious Age. And he wrote this in 1991, I think, is that right? Some, 95. Uh, he didn't finish it, he died uh, somewhat young. And uh, his contention was that we live in an anxious world and that this poses certain challenges for leadership. But the best thing leaders can do is not be anxious, basically, right? So this is Finn. Finn can't see or hear very well. Uh, don't be scared. It's okay, bud. <laughs> he probably was walking around here and had no idea that there were so many people around because he, he's got cataracts, so... Um, so recently I, I stumbled upon another book which actually sort of makes the point I'm trying to make and it's called Black Swan. Um, I, I recognize the, the author's name, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. You know this, this fellow? Oh, okay, yeah. And again, I started reading this and I, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> and the basic idea of it is that um, uh, our history is controlled mainly by highly improbable events, right? So again, the idea that you can predict what's gonna happen is, is kind of silly, but you can train yourself to take advantage of the unexpected when it does happen, right? So I've only gotten very, a very small way into it, but I'm, I'm quite intrigued. Um, I guess he's a, um, a Lebanese Orthodox. Uh, so that helps, I think, because I think this plays into the idea of faith that I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, so the future is unpredictable. This was something that was just taken for granted, you know, in the Middle Ages, for example. And the way they would talk about it is they would talk about uh, fortuna, fortune. And they had the Wheel of Fortune, um, not, not the game show, but the Wheel of Fortune was always shown. The wheel goes round and round. Sometimes you're at the top, everything's going great. And just at that time, you start going down and sometime you're gonna be at the bottom. That's just life. So you accept it. When you're at the bottom, you're, you're probably going to go back up. So hang in there. Can't, you can't control it. It's fortune. You know, it's, it's not, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But you can dispose yourself to be okay with it and just live with it and even learn from it. Uh, so as I say, we, we fool ourselves into thinking that the future is predictable. And then when things don't go as we plan, we become anxious. Uh, now, what might be a serendipitous event, something that takes us by surprise, an unpredicted event, uh, a highly improbable thing that happens, um, has the potential to bring us a lot of good. But the more it doesn't fit our plan, the less likely we are to take advantage of it. <laughs> okay? So if you think about like the Pharisees or St. Paul, who, who himself was a part of the Pharisee party, um, the Gospels tell us uh, that they didn't understand God's plan for them. God had a plan, but it, but it included sending his son 
as a man to them. But they, they already knew what was going on. They, they were the religious experts. This guy who comes and talks about you know, forgiving sins in his own name, no, that can't be right. That doesn't fit. And uh, you know, our, our Lord is at pains to say, you know, of all people, you, you should be the ones who are ready for this. Right? But it, it's, it's the people who have nothing to lose who are open to any unusual event, right? Uh, it's the poor and the downtrodden who tend to take advantage of the appearance of God in, in human form. <laughs> uh, why not, right? But this is true for all of us because all of us compared to God are, are pretty small and, and weak. So again, if we can see ourselves that way, then we have nothing to lose by trusting God. But when we, when we have all our ducks in a row and we get everything fixed, then when God changes our plans, we might resist God, right? So again, this isn't, this isn't to say we should make no plans at all. It just means that we have to be, uh, as I said, a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Well, we, we can propose, but we have to accept. I, I, I often say this, frequently we get prayer requests like this from people. I know I shouldn't pray for this, but I'd really like the Bears to win the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> right? And my response is, yeah. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. Uh, sure. So what I say is, you know, ask God for whatever you want, but you have to live with his response. Right? If, he, if, if the Bears don't win the Super Bowl, you have to say, thank you, Lord. Right? Because he knows what's best for you. And uh, so... Now, we could say this is one of those highly improbable events. <laughs> um, so, so to dispose ourselves to be ready for being flexible, being ready to change when God asks us to. I mentioned St. Paul, of course. He knew these Christians were wrong. They were going to get the, the Jewish people in a lot of trouble. He's got papers from the high priests. I mean, he's got his bona fides. He's got it all figured out. And then he is blinded by this encounter with Jesus Christ. And it takes him a while. That's something I like to point out to the brothers. He doesn't change right away. He needs about 12 or 13 years before Barnabas goes and retrieves him from Tarsus. And, he's, and then he's St. Paul. He's got to reorient himself. And... Uh, Probably, again, to the extent that Paul had it all figured out before, it took him longer <laughs> to, to make this change. But he did. He did. He welcomed. And, and he had to learn this a second time. Um, I think it's Acts chapter 14 or so. I think he's uh, around Lystra and Derby, that area. And he preaches the gospel there. And the people rise up against him, stone him, and throw him in a heap outside the town. And his disciples think he's dead, but he, he gets up, brushes himself off, and they go back into the town, get their stuff and leave. And then as they're traveling, he says, uh, I just love this line. Uh, it's through many tribulations that we will enter God's kingdom. <laughs> right? So Paul just expected he was going to go and preach. And unlike the other Christians that came before him who were persecuted, he, wasn't, he was going to avoid this fate. Nope. <laughs> but he changed. He, he accepted that. Uh, so... Another way of thinking about this, if you need more convincing, as I said last month, we don't fully yet know how to praise God 
or what to praise him for. So we, we do this over and over again. We expose ourselves to the scriptures and uh, we're looking to be converted. We're looking to change our outlook on things. By definition, this requires us to adopt behaviors and attitudes that we haven't started with, that we didn't know about at the beginning, right? And I find this is, this is such a beautiful thing about studying the church's tradition is that there's always more to learn and the more you learn about the church's tradition, the more it all holds together. Uh, but there are parts of it, so there are parts that attract us at the beginning, and there are parts that don't attract us very much, right? So if you read through the catechism, say, say you have a, uh, a conversion event, and you haven't been going to church, and suddenly you realize, I need to get back to church, and you buy the catechism. If you haven't been going to church and practicing your faith for the last five or ten years, you might read the catechism and kind of disagree with about half of it. Or you just might not get it. Like, why, what's the point of, like, explaining uh, these Trinitarian formulae? Like, what, what does that have to do with me? But if you hang in there and you keep working at it, like, you'll have these aha moments where, oh, I see. Uh, the center of reality is the, this three-person relationship of love. That means a lot. <laughs> right? Because what we think of as, as sort of undergirding reality is often something much less appealing, <laughs> if we think of it at all. Uh, so this should give us a lot of confidence. So we're, we're constantly undergoing this conversion, this change of perspective. God is constantly entering into our world from outside, pulling us toward him, opening our hearts to a deeper and deeper, yes, affirmation to God's initiative. But it... it it requires us to change. I mean, we, we, and we change into persons we don't know what we're going to be like when we start off. This is just life, again, I think in general. Um, we have some parents here, and I, you, know, you, you undoubtedly could not have predicted what your children were going to be like or uh, what you were going to be like after you raised children. <laughs> I'm sure you changed, right? Um, uh, and and you, you couldn't have predicted what it was going to be like. So this is the same with our relationship with God. Now, to some extent, simply because God is greater than our hearts, God is greater than our minds, anytime he intervenes in our world, it's going to appear as one of these black swans, right? So the black swan was, uh, as I understand, is named because this is a Taleb used this to, uh, as a name for his theory because... Um, for most of recorded history in the West, swans were always white. But then when they traveled to places like Australia, they realized, well, there are species of swan that are black. But this, this seemed like a highly improbable thing. And there are also mutations that take place, right? Um, so you can't really, just because you've seen 5,000 white swans and not a single black one doesn't mean the black one doesn't exist. <laughs> so just because, you know, you have five years where things are going along fine doesn't mean that day one of year six isn't going to throw everything in topsy-turvy. Um, Mother Teresa had that wonderful saying. Uh, I can't reproduce it exactly, but something effective, you know, what you build today could be destroyed tomorrow, but go ahead and build anyway, because it's not about what you build, it's about your relationship with God, <laughs> right? So if he wants you to build, build. If he wants it to be destroyed, let it be destroyed, right? But... Uh, those are all parts of the movement toward him. Now, 
I want to make an aside here. Uh, in my view, this is why virtue is so important. Virtue, uh, I dwell on a lot because it's not something, in my opinion, we talk about enough. Uh, at root, just a uh, review for those of you who heard me speak about it a lot already. The, the Latin word virtus uh, is an ability. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a disposition that allows me to do certain things that I couldn't do if I lacked the virtue. So if I'm courageous, that gives me the power to act courageously when I need to. Uh, and a person who lacks that virtue will either be cowardly or rash, right? So will either overreact and be too aggressive or will run away when there's danger. And, and there's a danger that needs to be faced. A courageous person might know when to, to cut, bait, and run. Right? That, courage means knowing how to meet danger correctly and rationally. Okay? Now, normally when we talk about morality in our contemporary world, we use um, systems that were derived uh, after the Renaissance and especially after the Enlightenment. So I'm going to talk about utilitarianism as a... Uh, as a contrast in the moment. So, but I wanted to explain why I'm talking about virtue because we don't think of virtue right away as something we should be cultivating. But the more we have courage, the more we have prudence, the more we have justice, the more we have temperance, you know, the ability to manage our desires, uh, the more we will have resilience when something bad happens. We'll, we'll be flexible, we'll have the ability will have the excellence of character to deal with whatever happens. We won't be thrown by it. Or if we're thrown by it, we'll know how to pick ourselves up and get out of it. Could you, yeah, I want you to turn that off too. So, uh, I think one of the reasons that virtue ethics, as it's often called today, is denigrated is because it sounds very selfish. It sounds very like I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to perfect myself and then I'll be a courageous person. If you think about it more in terms of giving us the ability to respond to the, the vagaries of life or to be able to help other people to respond in a way that is helpful, uh, in a way that is uh, that actually serves the common good, uh, virtue is why wouldn't you want to be courageous? Why wouldn't you want to be just, you know? Uh, so it's not, it's not quite um, a self-serving enterprise, though it, it does obviously help us. Now, let me show you how, say, other moral systems uh, don't work well with this concept of unpredictability or the black swan. Um, as I say, if, if, supposing that Taleb is orthodox, uh, he would probably share my ideas about virtue. So, for example, utilitarianism is a system. So the idea of this is uh, what we want to do in terms of our moral choices is maximize the amount of happiness for the most people possible. All right? The problem with this, uh, there are many problems. Utilitarianism, frankly, just doesn't work at all. But it's, I think, what most people kind of def by default accept like we should try to be as happy as possible and make as many people as happy as possible. The problem with this is um, we often don't even know what it means to be happy until some unexpected thing comes up. So I've mentioned these two friends of mine. 
I'm not sure I would have quite the same understanding of what it would mean to live a fulfilled life if I hadn't met these two people. I might, I might have met somebody else, but uh, I definitely link what I see as a flourishing life to these two friendships. And also, you know, to my monastic life. But my monastic life was something sort of more predictable in that I, I followed a vocation over a certain type of process. Um, the idea of entering a monastery was certainly unexpected. Uh, and I, I used to say, and I should still say this because it's still true, if God can get me into a monastery, there's, there's hope for everybody. And uh, I, I don't say that... Uh, um, just to, to get a laugh or something. Uh, I, I, the whole concept of being in religious life or being a priest was not something that interested me growing up at all, not in the slightest. And um, uh, it, it, now, interestingly enough, it, the, the two people it didn't surprise were these two friends of mine. <laughs> they were probably most at peace with it out of all of my friends. <laughs> um, so they saw something about me that I couldn't see about myself. Right. <clears throat> so let me get back to utilitarianism. So the problem is that we often can't conceive of what like would actually be happiness until something unexpected happens. And then we think, oh, my gosh, I've been aiming in the wrong direction the whole time. This is uh, kind of one of the themes of C.S. Lewis book, Surprised by Joy, that as long as we're looking for joy, we won't find it. It has to be something that kind of happens to us unexpectedly. Um, and. Uh, so, for example, let me, let me use uh, someone like St. Pacomius. So, Pacomius was a young man in the Thebaid, sort of the southern portion of Egypt in the 4th century, uh, late 3rd century, let's say. As a young man, he was uh, drafted very much against his will to fight in the civil wars that were going on in the Roman Empire. And uh, so, while he was sitting on this boat, waiting to be trained to go into battle, um, a bunch of people showed up with food and medical supplies and things like this. And uh, he was amazed, like, who, who are these people? And he asked somebody, what, where do these people come from? And the response was, they're, they're Christians. And they believe in this particular God, right? And so he said, he, he called upon this God that he didn't know. And he said, uh, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you and I'll serve mankind like these Christians did. And... Boom, I, I, I forget the exact political thing, but the, one of the uh, rival claimants to the empire died and uh, they called off the war and uh, he was freed from his conscription and he went back to his village and found some Christian tutors and became, was baptized and so on. And he discovered a way of life that he could not have conceived of before that, <laughs> right? So if you would have asked Pacomius at age 18, What's the right thing to do in this situation? And you asked him at age 25 or age 40, what's the right thing to do is he'd have radically different answers. But this is exactly, the, you know, he'd have a radically different understanding of what ma makes for happiness. You know, he, he couldn't have thought that there was this idea of eternal life in the way that the Christians meant it before he discovered Christianity before he encountered Jesus Christ and these persons serving him. Another saint I like to think of in this regard is St. Josephine Bakhita. She lived uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, she grew up in Sudan, or at least she, she spent her early childhood in Sudan. 
and uh, some Arab slave traders raided her village and, and uh, took her hostage and sold her into slavery where she was uh, sold and traded for 20 some years and uh, finally she was uh, sold to a, an Italian man who uh, brought her back to Italy and uh, at some point he had to go travel back to Sudan there was a, there were civil wars going on there at the time and um, he treated her very well so she was intrigued by this because he was a Christian but he left her in the care of the Kenosian sisters while he went back to Sudan and uh, they treated her with such kindness that she said I want to be a Christian so they had her baptized and she became a sister of the order and um, uh, she is now the, the patron saint for the ending of human trafficking of all things but she was very interested in the African missions after this and um, almost immediately after she died her cause for canonization came up because she was known to be so uh, gentle friendly consoling and she went through 20 years of just unbelievable difficulty uh, you read about her sufferings during her slavery it's really terrible um, during that time and parts of what she says was when she met the sisters she had no concept that life could be like this. This was totally unexpected. She just figured the rest of her life she'd be somebody's servant. That's how life was. So again, from a utilitarian standpoint, she would have a sort of deficient understanding of what is possible in terms of human flourishing or happiness. And so um, uh, I would propose something like virtue as to be pursued rather than um, trying to calculate what would bring about the most happiness because that gives us the uh, flexibility to deal with responding to unexpected events. So anyway, that wasn't so, so convincing, but I'll, I'll, we'll, you'll have to live with it. <laughs> um, at root, getting back to this idea of the, the unpredictability of the future and the necessity of faith, there is always this paradox in Christian life that we gain our lives by losing them, right? And this requires then that we continue again to grow in this virtue of faith that would allow us to make this gift of ourselves without knowing what's going to happen. So, um, you know, I, and I, I did mention that in addition to the two friendships that I had, entering religious life has had unexpected consequences. But that's how it should be, in a sense, because when you give your life over to God in monastic life, you don't know what's going to happen. The same thing in, any, in, any, uh, in a marriage, again. Uh, but uh, I think in, there's a temptation in monastic life to expect, just like there is in so many aspects of our world today, well, I'm going to enter this, and then I'll go, and I'll, I'll, I'll learn this, and I'll, I'll learn this, and I'll go to solemn vows, I'll be ordained a priest, I'll become the prior, I'll be made a bishop, uh, whatever it is, you know. There's, there's a whole series of things I've planned out. But that's not the point of giving myself to God, because I have to be ready for whatever he asks of me, you know, whatever that is. And, you know, one of the things you discover when you enter a religious life is that the reality is very different from what you thought it was going to be. And that that's actually salvific, because if it was something that I could have predicted, then I didn't maybe have enough to learn from it. <laughs> um, so this is the this is part of that paradox: is that um, 
it's, it's at the heart of uh, a mystical tradition that you see both in East and West, but especially in the East, that we call the apophatic tradition. God is always greater than anything we can describe or imagine. And so as soon as we can say something about God or imagine something about God, we say that's not God. <laughs> and this means we're perpetually out of our depth. We're perpetually in no man's land. But to some extent, that's exactly what a monk wants. The monk wants to be in the desert, in no man's land, in the wasteland. Because then we're relying on God. Then God can do whatever it is he needs to do. And this is, I think, the perpetual challenge of monasticism, certainly in the West, where we've had these big institutional versions of monasticism, that uh, it can get comfortable. You can, you know, uh, I send out our ask letters, our benefactors send money, we build this, we, we uh, do this, this and that, and everything's fine. And then um, uh, I think two events that affected me profoundly since I've entered the monastery, happened at a, almost exactly the same time. <laughs> it was quite a year. This was, uh, was it a year before you entered? Was it was 2008, I think it was. Uh, in 2008, um, the city was dealing with all, all kinds of problems with the storm drains and uh, with this, this deep tunnel project and so on. And one of the consequences of this was Bridgeport kind of got neglected. I, maybe I shouldn't record this and put it out in public. I don't want to get in trouble with the aldermen. But um, when we'd have these big flash rainstorms in Bridgeport, everybody would get water in the basement. It was really a disaster, and this went on for several years. Finally, they they updated all the storm drains and made them. Uh, they've got about four times the capacity that they used to have. So we haven't had any problems since then. The first flood was a real catastrophe. It just completely obliterated the basements of the church and the cloister here. It, it just, we've got two steel doors there now. The old door just got knocked down. It picked up, uh, the water picked up uh, the refrigerator that we have just on the other side of that door, rammed it through the, the doorways, <laughs> and took it all the way to the other end of the, of the basement. And um, uh, the, the funniest part about this for me was the, the next morning, we got down there with our brooms and uh, Father Edward called the insurance company and said, yeah, well, we, we think we probably have, uh, I don't know, like $2,000 of damage or something like that. And the person said, uh, let me send an adjuster out there for you. It ended up being like $250,000 of damage. <laughs> so um, it was pretty demoralizing, you know, to see your your half of your living space and we had all the uh, offices down there so we had to move the offices over here um, it was very very difficult but it allowed us to build our chapter room build that room down there that's our sort of recreation room rethink the office space um, it turned out to be a really important thing because we needed to do something with our basement and uh, god forced us to by destroying it all and then giving us the Christian brothers who were very good with uh, the um, relief money but just as we were starting to like realize what what was uh, the extent of this problem and the damage and how much work it was going to be to fix it because uh, I mean, among other things we discovered there was asbestos underneath all the uh, floor tiles over there <laughs> and that meant you know again like the the amount of damages going up and up and up just as that's happening 
Um, Brother Augustine comes to me and says he's got chest pain. So we take him to the emergency room and he was having a heart attack. It was mild, so they got that under control. Uh, and then the next thing we know, he was in ICU for a month and a half because um, he had cancer that, that we didn't know about. And it took, uh, uh, he was really sick for about 16 months. It was a long ordeal. He went 14 months without eating by mouth. He had to eat through a tube for 14 months. Um, and we just, we really had to close ranks as a community. It was really scary. Uh, most of you probably don't remember what Brother Augustine was like before he was sick. He was a big, strong guy, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, we couldn't have predicted this. We couldn't have predicted either thing. But I think, uh, you know, if, if Brother Augustine were here, I think we would both say this was a really crucial time for us as individuals in our faith life. It was crucial for the community to come together and take care of the sick brother. It was crucial for Brother Augustine to tr entrust himself to the Lord at a deeper level. You know, I think he came out of it as a man much more at peace with uh, his monastic vocation. Uh, we could not have predicted that. We wouldn't have chosen it, <laughs> probably. Um, and yet, had it not happened, I, you know, I see that God was active. He was with us. He was using this to sanctify us, to show us what sacrifice looks like, to show us what trust looks like. Um, and to some extent, you, you, you can't know what resources you have. You can't know what your faith, how strong your faith is until it's tested, <laughs> right? So, so we have to be ready for that. And this is why St. Benedict tells us we should meditate on death every day. Because if, if we're not preparing us, ourselves for whatever it is that God has in store, and part of that is dying, uh, then when it happens, we might not be ready for it. And we, and we might not have the resources for it. We might not have the flexibility to give ourselves to God, to make that act of faith. So I think part of what we're being called to in this, in the contemporary moment where we have so many uncertainties, is to bring ourselves back to this reality that, um, yes, um, <laughs> I saw a very funny meme. Um, it was a picture of um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer um, wearing masks and kinte cloth kneeling down. And it said, imagine sending this to your 2019 self with no explanation. <laughs> and the point is, again, in, in November, we could not have known what was, what was in store, right? And to some extent, the way we've responded has to do with how much we had cultivated our faith before, right? Mm -hmm. So, so if it's really thrown us for a loop, it's possible that this is a, a, a warning that we need to work on our faith. We need to entrust ourselves more to God. We need to take more time in prayer. Uh, we need to meditate on the, the reality that we're gonna die. Uh, whatever it is, each of you has to af ask yourself that. I can't answer that, the specifics of it. But it's just a reminder that, um, you know, Western civilization has been has an, had an incredible run. I don't think it's spent in any way, frankly, um, because I think because it's based in the Christian proclamation, it's always going to be appealing. Uh, the aspects that are that come out of the Christian truth will always win over hearts because it's true. <laughs> you know, Jesus is truth. Uh, we we should be confident in that. So I, I'm not a, a doomsayer, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to go well. <laughs> that doesn't mean we won't have to fight for it. It doesn't mean we won't have to suffer for it. it. doesn't mean we might not lose it all. 
Uh, it's just to say that in the end, God will have the last word. And so we can entrust ourselves to him. We can make this act of faith. Okay, let me stop there. I, we have about 10 minutes before I will need to stop, but I wanted to give you a chance to ask any questions you might have about anything I've said or left out. <laughs> Yes, Dan. He was, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, so you might be able to say more about this, but part of the one of the themes that came up in the early pages of Black Swan has to do with the problem of recursiveness, that the fact that we're connected together so much sort of rewards reactivity and impulsiveness. And so things become a, a bigger problem really fast than they would have back when we were an agrarian society. And it took, um, oh, I, I was just reading about the, uh, the history of the Benedictines in the United States. And you know, if, if somebody needed to go to Rome from Indiana, it could take four weeks each way. And so if there was a meeting your abbot might be gone for half the year. <laughs> and you just accepted that. But, yeah, I think in our world, one of the things I really dislike about social media is that it's, a, it's, it's an environment where people who think fast and can, ar- can articulate things really quickly dominate. But that doesn't mean they're right. It just means they think fast and articulate well. You're right? So it kind of rewards impulsiveness. Whereas... Part of what our Lord has to say to Peter is, you know, tone it down a little bit. <laughs> Trust me, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, just a little. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one of the points with Peter was, uh, wasn't it the, the kind of transfiguration of Mark's gospel mm-hmm. that said he didn't know what he was talking about? <laughs> yeah, he didn't know what to say, but he kept talking anyway. Mark, I think Mark is the one where he was, uh, gave some input, so it was what goes. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, mention about the necessity of taking measures to increase our faith. Mm-hmm. Elaborate on that, maybe in a more utilitarian way. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess my suggestion would be just sort of typical practices of prayer. I, I think it's important to learn to be silent. Um, that, that that that's silent and still um, to to let the Lord uh, address whatever is making us anxious to be honest about that um, but then to give that to, to Christ um, to me meditation on the Psalms is so important uh, 
I, so when, um, during my, what I consider my conversion experience, which was just before I entered the monastery, uh, I would pray that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Before whom shall I shrink? When evildoers draw near, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I, I felt very forcefully sort of the spiritual battle in the sense that, uh, as I understood it, there were, there were demonic um, thoughts that were, that were trying to dissuade me from following Christ. And it made me very anxious. And um, so I would just force myself to sit there and say the psalm until the anxiety went away. Um, so that, that's part of what I mean. It's just diligent prayer, but, it's, but honest prayer that, that acknowledges what's bothering us, what, what we're afraid of. Um, so, uh, but I, I would say it, it, it'll, it'll de- differ for each person and the different temperaments again, too. Um, is there anything you want to add to that, Father Timothy? Is that, is that helpful or? Okay. Um, I, I don't urge this enough, probably, but silence and stillness as a regular practice, even if it's just five minutes trying to sit still and not let your thoughts run, but just to keep setting them aside, coming back to some simple acknowledgement of Christ's presence. I like to use something like amen. Just again, whatever, whatever's happening, amen, so be it. God's in charge. I don't have to worry about that right now. Um, there, so there are two two parts of this, to let go, to know how to let go of the thoughts that are obsessing me with anxiety and fear and worry, and then to know how to reintroduce, once those thoughts are set aside, to bring in the good thoughts from Scripture, from the liturgy, from the the lives of the saints, so that that becomes what I think about. Uh, But I think if, if, if you don't have both of those aspects, there's always the possibility that trying to meditate on Scripture will just make me more anxious because I can't focus on it. (laughs) <laughs> right so uh, so some and the stillness part is important because in my experience and I think this is supported by the monastic tradition if I can't quiet my body I won't be able to quiet my mind and if I if I can't sit still then probably I can't uh, keep my mind still either so so I think that's really important and I probably don't emphasize that enough because I normally work in spiritual direction with people who uh, are actually doing a lot of the work of this, the silence and not enough of the work of putting in the good thoughts. So, so um, and that's making them anxious because they sit down to pray and they can't think of anything. <laughs> and so then the, all the all the old thoughts flood back in. So it's important to replace the old thoughts with new thoughts about you know. So just to read St. Paul, read the Gospels, read the Psalms. Any other hints? Yeah, Matt. I'm just thinking about what you're saying. And would you say that um, that that form of, of silence um, where you kind of empty your mind mm-hmm. and, and uh, removing the thoughts that normally come, come to you with your being silent and replacing them with scripture mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and thoughts from Is that, would you say that that's kind of the fundamental difference between like Eastern styles of meditation, where it's more about 
-hmm. Yeah, good question. I would say, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the apophatic tradition, which has more to do with the emptying of the mind, is more prominent in the East for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's there in the West. I think this, this is a good question. I think the other piece of this is that any of this prayer will, will uh, benefit from ascetical practices. So prayer, fasting, almsgiving, sacrifice on behalf of others, um, those things, without that ascetical component, there's always the possibility that um, the silence will, will, will not be a productive one. So when the East talks about this apophatic movement, there's, uh, and again, this is a way in which the, the Orthodox are stronger than we are. They're already fasting a lot, <laughs> right? So we, we probably could do better to fast a little more than we do. There's already built in um, uh, lengthy prayers as, as an ascetical practice. And especially in monasticism, there, there are just these givens that, that uh, and this, this, this is true in the West as well. There are these given things that you have to do each day um, that make all this easier. So that's, that's actually another piece of this, is there, there has to be some conscious effort of self-denial in an ascetical manner to make this happen as well. Yes, true. I'm looking for some practical advice. For yes. In the battle of life and the unexpected, the unexpected happens and mm -hmm. we're confronted with things that make us anxious or fearful. What, mm -hmm. At that moment, what is the, the best response? Um, I think probably the first best response is not to do anything. Just observe and try to observe without any judgment. To say like this is what's happening. Um, I think one of the difficulties we run into is we, we try to come to a judgment right about right away about the good or bad of what's happening. Um, and if we're not sure, we should just be honest about that and say, well, this is happening, but I'm not sure what to make of it. And that's okay. Like I don't have to necessarily know right away. Um, so in the in the moment, like you say, when these unexpected things happen just to accept yeah just to accept it and then you know start thinking about what you're going to do next um but not out of a reactivity but out of okay yeah okay the basement's flooded well i guess it's time to get the brooms out <laughs> get the mop out um was, you know we had uh, these little jelly packets for, for our b and b and they're all over the floor so as we're going around we're like squish 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 and this jelly's going all over it was just such a mess and then it was such a relief to find out that, you know, among the things that the insurance would cover is getting professional cleaners in. You don't have to do it all. Um, so um, uh, taking, you know, to take a broad perspective, like tomorrow, again, I, I don't know. Right now I feel really anxious because this unexpected thing happened. But tomorrow something great might happen. I don't know. Uh, I think one oftentimes when we get anxious it's because we think because I'm anxious now this is how life is going to be from now on and I think with the all the uproar that's going on right now part of the difficulty is the fear that uh, our country's going downhill and it's just going to go downhill and it might but it might not we don't know um, it might 
suddenly improve and be awesome again for five years and then fall apart for some completely different reason. We don't know. So just to accept the one day at a time kind of thing. Um, then the other thing then is I think to look at where, where I could improve in virtue. So, and then work on that virtue. So if my first response was, was paralyzing fear, I might need to think about ways to work on my courage, to become more courageous. If the first thing I did was like explode at somebody and, and um, get really angry at somebody just because I could, well, that's unjust. So maybe I need to think about justice, like what I owe people. Um, you know, that, so I, I think to, to work on my flexibility so that, because there are situations that call for immediate action. I mean, I think we should be honest about that. Um, but that doesn't mean that our first impulse is the right immediate action. <laughs> so that's, that's a lifetime sort of learning, right? And I think we'll, we will do better to work on the virtues so that the next time we're, we're more prepared. But I, I mean, I find that's a really important thing for me. And I'm, I'm not very good at it. I have that very strong choleric temperament that judges right away. And um, sometimes just to say like, well, that's that. Okay. Um, I, I often find, for example, when I see a brother doing something and I don't understand it, when I, when I make a judgment about it, I'm wrong. And when I ask the brother, well, what are you doing or why are you doing this? I have the completely wrong idea of what he's doing. And once I realize what he's doing, then I think, oh, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Sure.
Well, I'll need to wrap up, but uh, I'll, I'll quote Cash in here uh, to support what you're saying. Conference 14, he says, we practice the constant meditation upon scriptures so as to achieve a spiritual point of view. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at is rather than trying to uh, attack our problems from a political or psychological point of view, those aren't necessarily bad. But at some point we need to bring in a spiritual point of view. And that's, you know, a long lifetime work. But yes, I, you're right. The, the first thing is detachment from whatever the thought is. And again, not even necessarily judging it or ourselves, just seeing it for what it is, letting it be there, not, not reacting. Okay, well, uh, we'll need to uh, be in the church in about three minutes. So let's say a final prayer together. Thank you so much. It's so, it's so good to be with you again. I really appreciate it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.